Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. 25 years ago this week, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Palestine Liberation Organization Chairman Yasser Arafat met on the White House lawn and signed the Oslo Peace Accords. For Israelis and Palestinians, it was a tremendous moment, and many saw it as the start of an inevitable process toward peace. This week saw a different sort of development in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as the Trump administration announced its intention to close the PLO mission in Washington, D.C., Joining us to discuss this news and the legacy of Oslo is Aaron David Miller, a vice president at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. For over two decades, Miller served as a key advisor on Middle East issues to Republican and Democratic secretaries of state. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, sir. The news of the week is that the Trump administration is closing the Palestinian mission in Washington, D.C., before we get into whether that was a wise decision, and I know you have strong feelings on the matter, can you help AJC Passport listeners understand exactly what function the mission served? You know, the mission was opened in 1994 through use of a waiver, which essentially allowed the administration assuming the PLO, and this was not the Palestinian Authority mission, it was the PLO mission, which, uh, according to the Israelis and the Americans, was the right um, institutional body of the Palestinians to deal with uh, anything relating to diplomacy or foreign policy. So it was done as a consequence of a waiver. It was largely, in my judgment, a symbolic act. Yasser Arafat, uh, <clears throat> basically the seminal figure in Palestinian nationalism, never took the office seriously. For the years that um, I worked on this problem, uh, uh, almost 20 if we wanted stuff done, we didn't go through the PLO mission, uh, or what is now the PLO general delegation in Washington. We always went through State Department or NSC or White House directly to Ramallah or to the top negotiator. So I would argue on balance, it was largely a symbolic effort to acknowledge the fact that the U.S. now had a relationship with the um, PLO, the embodiment of Palestinian nationalism, but as a practical matter on our side, I think it had very little significance or relevance. Last week, even before this latest news about the PLO mission, you tweeted, in 40 years following U.S. policy in and outside government, never seen any administration simultaneously support Israel so uncritically and go after Palestinians so harshly, both without logic, purpose, or national security rationale. So now, with this latest decision added to the pile, I assume your mind has not changed. What's your take on the closing of the PLO mission and on the whole accumulation of matters in this issue? Look, there's a certain reality here. The U.S. has a, has a special relationship with the state of Israel. That relationship is based on value affinity. It's based on Israel or commitment to Israel security. It's based on the debt that the United States believes it owes, the world owes, to the Jewish people in the wake of the Nazi genocide. It's a very strong relationship. The problem is, in this administration, and at various times in the past, but nothing like we've seen now, the special relationship has become an exclusive relationship. We essentially, uh, without, in my judgment, without logic or rationale or strategy, have basically surrendered any American independence or initiative or credibility when it comes to the very difficult issue of, of peacemaking to Israeli sensibilities, preferences, and desires. 
frankly, some of that is new. We've been very pro-Israel in many administrations, but we've always maintained somewhat of a balance. The point I was making is that for the first time in the history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship, and certainly for the first time in the history of the Arab-Israeli peace process dating back to the 70s, we have now pursued, for reasons that I do not understand, I've met with Mr. Kushner a couple of times, for reasons I do not understand, we're pursuing a policy that appears designed to pressure, punish, create enough vinegar while we give the Israelis honey on the presumption that somehow this is directed towards some logical or willful purpose. Presumably, if you believe uh, Mr. Bolton uh, and the State Department, to try to get the Palestinians to engage, re-engage, react to, uh, you know, a peace plan that has not yet even been published. So in, in my judgment, I mean, look, you can, you can be tough with both parties. Kissinger, Carter, Baker... Um, and I, I, I was familiar, worked for Jim Baker, was familiar and interviewed both Kissinger and Carter for lots of stuff I've written. They all applied vinegar to Israelis and Palestinians, but they always sought to maintain some semblance of American credibility and some sense of balance. So I don't see if someone could outline for me a strategic rationale or purpose in why we appear to be going or waging an economic and political war against the Palestinians, I'd be open to try to understand what the administration is doing, but I don't. And that's what troubles me and bothers me as an American. Well, this is not the most well-crafted thesis, but I know that I will have listeners who will be wondering and just kind of tickled by the general sense of, you know, isn't there an argument to be made that the Palestinians have been intransigent for so long that it's time they suffer some pushback from the United States? And I think it's a fair question to ask. Well, the question is, I mean, there are two parts to your question. <clears throat> intransigent, if you ask me right now why we don't have a serious negotiation between Benjamin Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas, and frankly, why since Camp David, even though there, there have been efforts, Abbas and Omer was one, to create the kind of basis for negotiation, I would argue to you that this is not a morality play, that both the Israelis and the Palestinians have legitimate requirements that they're going to assert, and they would expect to be met. And the reality is you have two leaders who are prisoners of their political constituencies and their ideologies, who neither have the will nor, in my judgment, the capacity or the desire, frankly, to make the kinds of decisions that would alter the status quo. Now, we could argue all day long about what intransigence actually means. I choose, and I've been criticized roundly, trust me. <laughs> I, I've, I've been hammered and blasted, and my Twitter feed reflects it. We could choose to turn this into a morality play where we assert that Benjamin Netanyahu's needs in a negotiation outweigh the needs and the requirements of Abbas's. I, frankly, I think that is a question of whether or not you want to turn this into a game in which you, in this case the United States, decides to adopt the position of one side over the other. And there's another reality here, Steph, that needs to be acknowledged, and I, I admit my own mistakes on this. There was a time when I actually did believe that on the six core issues that drive the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, border security, refugees, Jerusalem, recognition of Israel as the nation-state of the Jews, 
and end of all conflict and claims. Those are the six core issues that need to be resolved in order to create a conflict-ending solution. There was a time when I actually believed that there was a way to reconcile Israeli and Palestinian requirements on those core issues. I haven't given up hope, but I have given up what remained of my illusions. Because I think, frankly, over the years we have, we, and I'll speak as an American, I'm not judging the Israelis and I'm not judging the Palestinians. I'll speak as an American. We have disrespected those issues. We have assumed that somehow we could find a clever, agile fix to all of those issues through some, you know, clever formulations. We tried this at Camp David on the issue of Jerusalem. We were going to take sovereignty away from both Israelis and Palestinians. And uh, one proposal was literally, since it's divine, overlapping sacred space, Har Habayit and Haram Sharif, we were going to take sovereignty away from both and accord it to, to God. <laughs> or give the Israelis sovereignty below ground, where the remains of both of the temples are, and give the Palestinians sovereignty above ground, where the mosques, where the reliquary, the Dome of the Rock, and Al-Aqsa are located. So rather than try to turn this into, well, one side is intransigent, one side is not, my default position right now is very simple. Until you have leaders who own this negotiation and really want to get it done, until you have an American mediator that's fair and reassuring, respectful of Israel's security needs and requirements and of the special relationship, and understanding that there's another party here called the Palestinians that also have a moral and historic claim, you can hang a close for the season sign on this whole process. So that's the way I look at it. And again, you know, my friends in the pro in the very strong pro-Israeli community can't understand my thinking or my logic. Um, I've been very, um, how do I put it? I would be the first person, and I told Mr. Kushner this, to break open a bottle of champagne if these guys manage to pull this off. As an American, this is an important issue. It is not the most important issue in the Middle East. It's another mistake I think I had made analytically over the years, but it is an important issue. Uh, I'd be the first to raise my glass if they come out with something credible. But I also made it clear that if we come out with something that embarrasses the United States, and let me make it clear, I'm, you know, I'm a human being first yeah. with a strong sense of my Jewish identity. But above all, I want to see America succeed. I want America to be credible, to be viewed as a nation, particularly abroad, that knows what it's doing, that has prudence, wisdom, and can also be fair and understanding and tough. So that's really what I care about. And I said to Mr. Kushner, I'd be the first to toast him if, in fact, they manage to put something out that's credible and actually begin the process, because solving it is another matter. I told him the first time I met him that I wish my father-in-law had as much confidence in me as his (laughs) father-in-law appears to have in him. He's given him Mission Impossible. That's the real issue here. The key here is not so much the man or woman in the middle whatever U.S. Secretary of State or President or Special Envoy. It's really, it's the guys on either side and the political constituencies that they serve and the needs that they reflect. And and frankly, I just, I don't blame anyone in this respect. This deal right now, for so many reasons, is just too hard. And I suspect for the foreseeable future, we're going to remain trapped between a two-state solution that's too important to abandon, even while the Trump administration is not 
in an unqualified manner um, validated the notion that the end game of this negotiation is supposed to be two states. Uh, too important to abandon on one hand and too difficult to implement on the other. And that's, you know, that's not a great space to be in, frankly, for anybody. Well, so let me ask the question slightly differently, because I think that there are a lot of people who wonder, actually, if I recall correctly, in the early days of the Trump administration, you yourself warned and have since walked that back, that there will be a time when the other shoe drops, that Trump will be very good to Israel, very close with Netanyahu. And he himself has said something to this effect recently. Eventually, he's going to ask for something from Israel. And because of how warm he's treated Israel, how how much he's acceded to kind of every request and even some things that weren't really requested. Requested, Israel will kind of have no option but to comply. And Prime Minister Netanyahu, in particular, who has been a bear hug, can hardly make the case to the Israeli people that, you know, that Trump is anti-Israel. So it will kind of stick him between a rock and a, and a hard place. Is there still a chance, do you think, that the Trump administration would push for anything that would be seen as, you know, good for the Palestinian side of things? You know, it's a fascinating question. At the beginning, you're right. I argue that within a year of the election, that Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Trump would be annoying the hell out of one another. <laughs> but the, the fact is, that has not occurred, which leads me to believe that what I would call the Jim Baker view of negotiations, one to which I would ascribe, that the logic of the Trump administration for the first year might have been, you know, uh, Obama and Netanyahu did not get along. There were so many constituencies, both in Israel and the United States, that mistrusted their respective partners, that the U.S.-Israeli relationship was a soap opera, basically too many ups and downs. We really need to live in and out, and we need to demonstrate that we are, in fact, the most pro-Israeli administration in the history of the relationship. Therefore, we are going to do this, 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 and this. But the logic of doing so many things. I mean, after all, Mr. Trump's predecessors, four predecessors, took their first foreign trips to Candor, Mexico. I mean, Mr. Trump goes to Saudi Arabia and Israel. He's the first president to visit Israel this early in his term, the first president to pray at the Western Wall while president, first president to announce that he was intending to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the first president to actually do so, and the first president to open an embassy in Jerusalem. So a lot of firsts there. So the logic might have been, you know, we're going to create so much confidence and so much goodwill and so much trust that when inevitably we need to ask the Israelis to do tough things, as we will have to ask the Palestinians to do tough things, we will have so much currency in the bank, we will have so much goodwill that A, the so-called vinegar, as opposed to the honey, will go down easier. It'll make it easier for Mr. Netanyahu to make these decisions because we have his back. Or alternatively, if he balks, we will create a set of circumstances where one of the justifications for balking can never be, not be, ever be, that this administration does not have Israel's back. That would have been, frankly, if you could have figured out a way to manage the Palestinians, that would have been a strategy. That would have been an actual approach. And if you listen to Mr. Greenblatt and Mr. Kushner in the interviews that they've given, you do get a sense, they've said flat out, that neither side will like everything and that there may be some tough decision. The president, curiously, has said at least four times in the last 500 days plus that there will be some sort of price to pay on the Israeli side for having taken Jerusalem off the table. Mr. Bolden was quick to correct that a week or so ago, but I'm not sure. You know, could we wake up when the 40 to 50 page plan 
is put on the table and there are statements like the ultimate objective of this negotiation is two states, an independent state of Palestine living side by side in peace and security with, with the state of Israel. So no more confusion or conflation about whether one state or two states, but a legitimate, contiguous Palestinian state. Could we wake up and find a statement in there that says, during the course of the negotiations, Jerusalem, which is a city and an issue of huge emotional uh, attachment to the Palestinians in the Arab states, Jerusalem will emerge as the capital of two states, and we will open an embassy once that Palestinian state is established. Could we wake up and find that there are these elements in that plan? I mean, I think they could actually do that without getting into the details and keep the door open for a credible negotiation and be perceived to be credible. Most of me, however, thinks that those statements will not appear because most of me believes that the president's desire when he first came out with this, that he was going to do the ultimate deal, was not carefully thought through. And like so many other things in the Trump administration, political needs and sensibilities, the president's own ego, a need to fulfill campaign commitments and play to the base, really do inform and color the policy more than, I would argue, sensible, coherent foreign policy and national security objectives. So if you ask me, do I think this plan is going to present really tough decisions for the Israelis? I would say probably not. The best that's going to happen, in my view, when and if they put it on the table, is the Palestinians will say no. The Israelis will say yes, but for many reasons. The Arabs will say maybe. And we're going to sit with this issue either before the midterms or after the midterms, wondering exactly how the U.S. is going to respond Aaron, the other news this week is about the International Criminal Court. In 2015, the ICC opened a preliminary investigation into what it called the situation in Palestine. In July of this year, the court asked, again, what it called Palestinian victims to come forward. Then this week, National Security Advisor John Bolton warned the ICC not to go after Israel. That was as part of a broader um, kind of diatribe against the ICC related to possible charges it may bring against the United States in terms of what we've done in Afghanistan. Um, I I know you're not an international lawyer, but how does the court and this slow burning potential prosecution of Israel figure into the prospect of diplomatic progress? I think, look, you know, you have two conflicts. You have the, the conflict that goes on. Every day, and over the last 40 years, it's vacillated between accommodation, confrontation, agreement, lack of agreement, near agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. That's what I call the real Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the one that counts. Then you have another conflict, the one that occurs in the corridors of power in Washington and Brussels, the UN, the ICC. That is the what I call the other Arab-Israeli conflict. And frankly, I cannot think of it. Oh, maybe one instance in where the other Arab-Israeli conflict ended up being integrated into the real Arab-Israeli conflict when it actually had a positive impact. So, no, the Palestinians referred this issue to the ICC in May. The chief prosecutor is considering it. I think she's obligated, according to the provisions of the court. Palestinians understand that if they charge the Israelis with war crimes, that the chief prosecutor is going to also investigate Palestinian, quote-unquote, war crimes and Israeli, quote-unquote, war crimes against one another. So this is, this is going to be a double-edged sword. I, I think, frankly, uh, I mean, I worry about the administration sanctioning judges 
and threatening the court. But my own instincts here is that the International Criminal Court, which we are not a member, uh, on the issue of the Israelis and Palestinians is only going to provide a major, major headache. It's going to cause enormous troubles and dislocation. It's going to lock each party deeper into a track, which is going to bring them no closer to where we all, I think, would like to be. So, no, I I think, frankly, a hot rhetoric notwithstanding, I'd be more inclined to support the position that the administration has taken on this issue. And, frankly, many of the unbalanced resolutions uh, that have appeared over the years at the U.N. I do not believe BDS. I do not believe international sanction. I do not believe even the diplomatic campaign to recognize Palestine. I do not believe any of that, frankly. It interacts with the real Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a way that's going to get Israelis and Palestinians any closer to presumably where the, the most sensible among them want to be. Well, folks, that was Aaron David Miller, who uh, just published this morning in USA Today, a op-ed entitled 25 Years Ago This Week, Mideast Peace Seemed Inevitable. Now it's further away than ever. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Steph, it was a pleasure. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. This is really a wonderful forum. And uh, I look forward at some point in the future to participating again. We look forward to having you back on. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Beer. Good for the Jews? What, were you expecting something about this holiday season? Something sweet and sappy? Frankly, there are just too many holidays. We could spend the whole month talking about Rosh Hashanah, the Fast of Gedalia, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, and Shemini Atzeret. But that'd be a little too one note. So instead of repentance and judgment, let's turn to something a little hoppier. A team of Stanford University researchers working in the mountains outside of the northern Israeli city of Haifa has discovered a 13,000-year-old brewery, the oldest ever. Once, beer lovers in Israel had very few options. When I lived there 10 years ago, selection was basically limited to Gold Star and Tuborg. But today, Israel has a thriving microbrewery culture, and at pubs and restaurants across Israel, you can order not just Gold Star, but Negev, Bira Shapira, Dancing Camel, Hadubim, Oak and Ash, Beer Bazaar, Gems, Busters, and many, many more. That's the beauty of Israel, isn't it? 13,000 years ago, the nomadic Natufians brewed beer in that land. When the Israelites came along several thousand years later during the time of the Bible, they probably brewed beer too. Today, you can enjoy a cold one from a brand new state-of-the-art microbrewery. And as long as you enjoy responsibly, and your rabbi would warn not on Passover, beer, both ancient and new, is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. 
If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.